phrase. Can I move this out of the way? While the phrase kingdom of God doesn't appear there, I think a number of you caught the idea pretty clearly that Numbers 14 had to do with God's rule over all things. Let me read for us from Romans 14. I'm going to back up just a verse or two from what your bulletin says, uh, beginning at verse 15. Uh, The text here is dealing with this issue. The fact that some people in the church in Rome felt free to do certain things and other people in the church in Rome didn't feel free to do those things. And so people could start judging each other one way or the other and thinking little of the person who did it or who didn't do it. And so Paul writes Romans 14 and into chapter 15 to deal with that issue in the church. Verse 15, Romans 14. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Just a few minutes ago, you joined together with some leadership to pray what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer. One of the petitions, requests in that prayer is, Thy kingdom come. What's that mean? Well, we're going to look at a very tiny part of the answer to that question this morning. But if you'd like a fuller answer to that question, you could get hold of a copy of the Westminster Shorter Catechism and read the question and answer number 102, or you could get hold of a a copy of the Westminster Larger Catechism and read question and answer 191. I was really surprised recently when I reread 191 to see how long it goes on. But that's not where we're going to be this morning. The Apostle's idea in Romans 14, 17 is about only one part of what it means to pray, your kingdom come, Lord. And that part is the present rule of Jesus in our hearts by the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to ask, I'm going to look at three questions this morning. Um, And the first one will be very brief, so don't blink, you might miss it. Why does the apostle speak of the kingdom of God? 
He doesn't do that nearly as often as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In all of Paul's epistles, you have about one reference to the kingdom of God for every seven pages of text. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have one reference to the kingdom of God, or its equivalent, the kingdom of heaven, on almost every page. Wow. Wasn't Paul well-trained in this subject? Didn't he know how important the kingdom of God is? Well, it's a subject for another day. But Paul expressed much of what was taught about the kingdom of God in different words in his letters. But there is one reference I want to call your attention to, and the only one we'll look at, although there are 10 or 12 more in Paul. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. God has transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If God has done that in your life, then you are now a citizen of the kingdom of God. What a standing, what a privilege you have, and what a calling you have as well. Second question, what should characterize our citizenship in the kingdom of God? And the answer to this question has two sides, and they're both very important. And I'll start with the negative one and then move on to the positive one, because that's the order in which they appear in verse 17 of Romans 14. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, Paul writes. Now there's a context to that statement, and we're not going to work hard on the context today, but I think once you hear what we're looking at in verse 17, you could go back to all, all of chapter 14 and grasp what's going on there. Okay? Kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. What's Paul saying there? Well, I believe he's telling his readers and us as well by the Holy Spirit's work that we need to be careful not to be overly committed to matters which are only the incidentals of this world and this life. See, that's what was happening in Rome. Certain people knew they had freedom to eat whatever, uh, whatever kind of food they wanted. Others were vegetarians. Well, we still have that going on today, don't we? For different reasons, probably. And certain people felt free to drink certain things, and others, no. We have some of that going on today as well. And Paul is making the point to the readers in Rome that they mustn't make a big deal out of what they do or don't eat or drink because those things are not all that important. Now, I know that sounds very simple and straightforward to you and you readily nod your head in agreement. I would invite you, however to do what I've tried to do in the last week or two, which is take a look at life 
and see what seems really important to you. And consider what it is, the choices that you make, the uses of your time, the things that your minds dwell on, the, the matters that, that occupy you day and night even. And then ask yourself, does that have anything to do with the kingdom of God? And maybe it does. Because God calls us to do more than simply sit and read the Bible all day. And there may be many things you do that actually are related to the kingdom of God, but I still encourage you to take a look, to take a look at your life and then ask yourself the question, does this have to do with God's present rule, the present rule of the Lord Jesus over the way I live my life, over the choices I make, over the things that I strive after. Verse 14, I'm sorry, Romans 14 tells us that this kind of evaluation is necessary even when the things that you do are approved by God's word. There were, peop- there were things that the Roman Christians did that uh, God said were good. Uh, Paul refers specifically to eating meat or drinking wine. But then a little later in the chapter, he says, uh, verse 21, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. In other words, what this passage says about the kingdom of God has to do with all of life. We look at all of life and say, does what I'm doing have anything to do in my heart and mind with God's reign over all things? That's a question you'll have to work on. The kingdom, Paul says, requires forbearing the right that you may have if the exercise of that right would harm a brother or sister. So even if something you're doing is acceptable to God in terms of food or drink or other areas of life, there is a need for caution. Because the calling of God is that we not offend. That we so love our brothers and sisters that we are willing to set aside freedoms and rights in order to protect those who are weaker. You know anybody that did that? Of course you do. The Lord Jesus himself came to this earth for that very purpose. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 tells us, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of, of humanity. And being found that way being found as a man. 
he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So what Paul's actually teaching here in Romans 14 is, dear brothers and sisters, you need to be willing to give up something that might even be precious to you if that action in relation to a brother or sister is causing them to stumble. Where are people in this country who love our freedoms? I do. I suspect you do too. And I suspect you're not very happy when you see your freedoms getting trampled on, as they seem to be pretty regularly in uh, the media and even in the direction our government takes at some points. Are we more concerned about maintaining our rights or about being pleasing to the Savior? I think that's the question that this passage puts before us. So negatively, what should characterize our citizenship in the kingdom of God? A willingness to forego our rights, our privileges even, if exercising them could cause a brother or sister to stumble. I remember when this subject came up in seminary, uh, a lot of years ago, folks. And uh, a couple men were talking, and one of them pointed out, yes, we can, uh, we could put aside our wine or whatever else, but then we're going to talk to that weaker brother to try to enlighten them about what they can, should feel free to do. I'm not sure that brother had caught the spirit of Romans 14. Because the point of our life is not just to go around straightening people out, fellow Christians, who don't understand things the way we do. The command of God is that we love one another, not that we live to correct one another. Now there's a place for teaching and discussion and conversation. By the looks on some of your faces, you probably want to ask me some questions about this whole idea of not being able to exercise your rights. Please feel free to do so. But the point of this command, this instruction, is that we care more about one another. that we not insist on exercising our rights in order to just do what we want. Kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, negatively, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. At this point, it would be nice to see some smiles on your faces. I am convinced that the main sense that Paul intended here in verse 17 has to do with the outworking of the gospel in our daily lives. What does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? It is to have the gospel working itself out in our daily lives in terms of righteousness, peace, 
and joy. In this sense, we pursue righteous living. What does that mean? Walking in God's ways, following his commandments, listening to what he teaches, evaluating our lives in the light of what he says in his word, not trying to defend the way we conduct ourselves, but being ready to be corrected. Righteousness. We experience peace in our hearts and in our relationships with others. You can see that there was a problem in the church in Rome. That's why Paul wrote these words, because there were conflicts and people dissing one another, criticizing, judging, looking down on those who felt free to do this or felt not free to do that. Peace was lacking in that body. The apostle says, righteousness, peace, and joy are what the kingdom of God is about. Peace inside and peace with fellow believers. Joy. Did you know that joy is not always happiness? Well, it's true. You can have joy even when circumstances are such that there is not happiness. God doesn't call us to walk around with big smiles. I did ask you to smile before, and a couple of you did. But uh, God does not call us to walk around with smiles on our, that pasted onto our faces all the time to try to show that we're joyful. The joy that the Holy Spirit gives is much deeper than that. Human happiness ebbs and flows. I woke up at 4.30 this morning. I finally got up at 6.30. I was not happy. (laughs) There had only been five hours of sleep at that point. I was not happy. But in spite of that, the Lord gave me joy. Because you can know the joy and peace that come from the Holy Spirit, even when your circumstances, and believe me, my circumstance was not so hard, even when your circumstances are not so pleasant, even when the disappointments hit and the losses occur, and grief seems to mount, there can still be joy, my friends. I think part of our problem with joy is that we identify it with happiness. And we're often not happy in the hardships of this life. And so we think we can't have joy. I'm here to tell you differently. Because I believe God tells you differently. Joy can be your experience by the work of the Holy Spirit. Joy can abide with you. Joy can even overflow in praise. 
joy can come as you read the Word of God and hear it when you're in circumstances that would not be your choosing. Some of you know that very well. What a gift of God. What a delightful gift of God to know joy even when circumstances argue against it. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Now, I am constrained to point out that there's something else in this text that sounds a little different, but I think it's just the background. You see, great scholars debate this text. I've read a few of them. And some of them say, well, what Romans 14, 17 is about with the kingdom of God is this, uh, this uh, sense that is, I've lost my place and the word, forgive me. Here we go. Subjective. You know, when you get to my age, you start losing words in the middle of sentences. <laughs> I knew something would get an amen here. The subjective sense, that is, it has to do with our experience. But some scholars are convinced that it's the objective sense of righteousness, peace, and joy. I don't think that flows out of Romans 14. But I'll invite you to look at the whole chapter and evaluate that for yourself. But the objective sense of righteousness, peace, and joy really is in the background here. It comes from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that's righteousness, justification is the reckoning of righteousness to your account, not your own, but that of Jesus. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the peace part. The account has been settled. We are in fellowship with the living God because of Jesus. And so Paul goes on, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There's the joy. Righteousness reckoned to you, peace a present reality in your relationship with God, joy as you look forward to the promise of eternity. But those things are in the background, that objective sense. But what they produce in those who follow Christ is this subjective or experiential sense of righteousness, peace, and joy. They are the outworking of what? Well, that's the third question I want us to look at. How does this experience of the kingdom of God, this subjective sense I've just spoken of, how does that come about? How do we come to have the ongoing experience of the work of the kingdom of God, the reign of the Lord Jesus in our hearts day by day? How do we come to have that experience? I have some very good news for you. It is not by your trying harder on your own. 
or being more self-disciplined. It is not by your trying harder on your own or being more self-disciplined. And some of you are thinking, but I've been told I need to be more disciplined. I need to have a Bible reading plan. I need to have a prayer list. I need to be sure I do these things every day. Well, there's some truth there, friends, but that's not how this experience of the kingdom of God comes to you. You have standing with God, but not without the Holy Spirit's work. How did you come to know Christ? Because God in his grace moved your heart, opened you, gave you a new heart, opened your eyes, brought you to faith in his Son, convicted you of the truth of the gospel, and you repented and believed. Even so, there is no experience of righteousness, peace, and joy in the kingdom without the Holy Spirit's ongoing work. I plead with you to understand that, my friends. Without the Holy Spirit's ongoing work, you will not know the experience of growing in righteousness, enjoying peace in your heart and in relationships, and having joy overflowing even when life is hard. Like salvation itself, living by the Holy Spirit. Now it's going to sound like I'm contradicting. I'll try to make it clear. Living by the Holy Spirit does not mean just waiting around and doing nothing or waiting for some special feeling to come. What happens when a person comes to Christ? Well, we might ask, what is the gospel? Mark 1.14, among other passages, I think makes it very plain. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee and he began to preach the good news, saying, repent and believe the gospel. That's the gospel. It's really what I said to the children this morning. Until you come to the place where you recognize that you like being king of your queen of your own life and tell God you're sorry about that, and ask his forgiveness. It's not until that comes that you can know you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. So that's what you have to do. You do something, even though it's the Holy Spirit's work. You're actually involved in the process. That's what you have to do in your initial coming to Christ. Similarly, living by the Holy Spirit, involves a conscious recognition of need, a humble crying out for help, and a persistence in prayer and dependence on Him. 
Some of you have known great sorrows recently. And maybe joy seemed far away for you. Others of you have suffered losses in the past, and you may still be feeling those losses. And some of us have suffered losses that we haven't even put our fingers on yet. We've not understood something that happened in our past, in our childhood, or our youth, or or our college days, or our early work days, or wherever it was. Some of us have had sorrows and sufferings that we've not even quite identified yet. And yet, the Holy Spirit can help you with those. Because you can cry out to him. You can plead for his help. You can make it your regular cry, Holy Spirit, help me. Lord, draw near. Open my eyes. Last part here, folks. It's easy to want this kind of kingdom reality in our lives without having to change the way we handle life. That's your challenge today. Are there actual changes you need to make in the way you handle life day to day in order to experience this work of the Holy Spirit in you. Sometimes we'd like to have the satisfaction of feeling good without seeking first the kingdom of God. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Sometimes we would like, instead of being righteous, to be successful. Sometimes, instead of being really peaceful, we'd just like to be content. And sometimes, instead of having real joy, we'd just like to be happy. Successful, content, happy. Sounds like the American way, doesn't it? Many people in this country are striving for those things. And while they strive for them, they are missing out on the real stuff. I think it's also the case, friends, just one more significant thought here. I think it's also the case that we are prone to think that we can wait to begin this seeking first the kingdom thing until after the present situation, challenge, need, opportunity, or difficulty is over. Lord, just help me to get through this, and then I'll put your kingdom first. Uh, Help me to face this challenge, or to rise to this opportunity, or to get through this difficulty. And then I'll put your kingdom first. Foolishness, people. Foolishness. Jesus didn't say, seek the kingdom after you've cleaned up your act, been successful, accomplished all the the goals you've set before you, 
And then you can seek the kingdom. As soon as you're retired, you can seek the kingdom. You'll have more time then. I don't think that's what Jesus meant. Not at all. Because you see, it's in the midst of this life that the Lord Jesus calls us to live for his kingdom. If that calling seems impossibly hard to you, or better yet, suppose you know a little bit about what's going on in the world and you see the suffering of believers in other nations and you see persecution going on and you see the terrible losses that people, some in this country and many outside of this country, are experiencing even though they claim to be followers of Christ. Suppose you look at that and you say, that's impossible. I could never do that. That's true, you couldn't. But here's the difference between us and those believers in other parts of the world who are suffering for their faith. Three words. The Holy Spirit. They're not doing it on their own. They're not somehow superior Christians to us. Somehow more spiritual. Or they've suffered before so they're better equipped to suffer now. That's not the issue, friends. The issue is that the work of the Holy Spirit is the key. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I am inviting you to revival. Revival that comes when we give the Holy Spirit His place in life, our lives. Our church's life. I'm not saying you know nothing about that. Dan, thank you for your introduction today. The whole thing with the poison ivy on your arms. Oh, I know what that feels like, brother. But thank you for making the point that we need a change inside. And that change comes as we consciously and conscientiously seek the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. I believe many of you understand these things, so I have spoken to remind you of your privilege to help you to guard against missteps and the devil's lies and to encourage us all to walk together in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. I've stumbled and fumbled today, but your spirit is good. And what I've said, you can make clear and you can bring righteousness and peace and joy to these your people who trust your Son. And we ask that in his name. Amen.